0: Alamin, uh, Akramil This is not going to be an academic talk, this is more in the spirit of the fraternal encounters that we've been having at Cambridge Muslim College over the last few years, when we ponder in a way that is real, rather than just theoretical, the implications for our current situation of the uh, classical legacy, which produced not just books, but also men and women, the actual outcome of this civilization of books, this civilization of scholarship, is the proof which comes about when human beings demonstrate in their own luminous lives uh, the beauty of the prophetic example. We always teach things at CMC, or we seek to, with the holy prophet, alayhi in mind. What is fiqh, after all, but a faithfully resourced and transmitted art of prophetic compliance. It's ultimately an exercise in sorting out good practice from ego practice and identifying the good practice with the way of the chosen one, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we've noted in the course of these Paradigms lectures the Uh, unity that exists in the diversity of this ummah and its various storied figures. Women as well as men, people from the east, people from the west, converts, born Muslims, educated people, not so educated people, scholars, warriors. Uh, It's a diverse image of what it is to be an exemplar, perhaps a better word more congenial to our tradition than a leader, which has a slightly sort of management science feel to it. We are looking for those who are following the leader, who is Uswatun Hasana, an excellent example. To lead in Islam is to be led by the chosen one, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And whether one person follows you, or no people follow you, or millions of people follow you, is not quite the point. The point is overcoming the lower self, conforming oneself to the way of the ultimate leader who is the chosen one, alayhi salatu was salam. Now, this is not an academic talk, but uh, let's just begin with a reflection on some recent statistics. Some of you will have noticed that the media was buzzing with reports on the religious changes which are happening in the United Kingdom. Last year's census, data have been crunched, and lo and behold, the latest tranche of data to be uploaded from the Office of National Statistics indicates that we're in the middle of a massive religious transformation. Decline in some senses, but in other ways, transformation and uplift. The Christian population is now less than half of the total population of the United Kingdom for the first time since the fifth century. Right now, we're living through that. 13% decline since the previous census in 2011. Other religions seem to be holding their own or spreading their wings, and many journalists have furrowed their brows at the fact that most Muslims are quite complacent about, which is that the Muslim population seems to have grown by about 40%. We're now somewhere around 4.5, 4.6 million. Probably more if you include people who weren't there on census night. It was, after all, the pandemic and things were strange. So we have to think, and CMC tries to think, what this means, this huge transformation, and being here in what was once a thriving church and now has a dwindling congregation but is now full of Muslims, Saracens, Ishmaelites, is perhaps a context to reflect on this. What kind of leadership is required in order to lead this growing flock. Hmm. As well as the Raiyah, there must be a (coughs) ra'i. As well as the sheep, there must be a shepherd, otherwise the sheep will do what sheep do. Either charging in an unthinking herd in whatever direction instinct takes them, or doing not very much, and we regard both of those outcomes as potentially threatening. So we need leaders. (coughs) What is Cambridge Muslim College? Training the next generation of Muslim leaders. But unlike some leadership programs which address the Muslim community, (coughs) uh, we try and develop paradigms of leadership that are rooted in our culture. (coughs) Leadership is not culturally neutral. It's very specific. (coughs) And many of the existing leadership programs, it seems to me, are drawing on managerial or ecclesiastical or secular models of what it is to be a leader of men and women and importing that uncritically into the Muslim context. But Muslim leadership is different. Cambridge Muslim College is trying to create Muslims that do not have a western half of their brain and an Islamic half of the brain and are walking around in a slightly schizophrenic state but have a single unified brain, a single worldview that is apt to become a leadership community. That's the nature of the Ummah, uh, but at the same time doesn't feel torn between different ways of being Muslim or being human. In any case, one thing we've learned from this journey through these paradigms is that there isn't one single way of doing that. But perhaps a thought that we can begin with today is the thought that those who are more recent are likely to speak to us a little more audibly than those who are from a very distant time. Those who are from distant times, well, we've looked at several of them already in this series. But you have to decode their context and try and take your mind in a time machine to a very different place. And the Ummah is, after all, an ongoing story. We are not just Sunni Muslims. We are the people of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. In other words, our interpretation of the unsurpassed and unsurpassable exemplar, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is something that is faithfully handed on through generations of scholars who pass it on through the Ijazah system to more scholars and so on until it reaches our poor worm-like selves. This is tradition. That's the nature of scholarship, that's the nature of what we do. We don't try and get into some imaginary time machine again and go back and see, oh this is the sunnah No, the sonne is what it has been interpreted as being in the purest way by the best scholars down the centuries. And that means that the more recent the scholar, and the more recent it gets, the more relatable it becomes. As a general rule. So the scholar that we're looking at today, scholar, saint, that we're looking at today, uh, is somebody who is from, not our lifetime... Uh, but one of his honoured descendants has come from Senegal and is with us today, and we're really delighted and humbled that so many of the, the, the Honourable Murid Brotherhood could be with us today, and we'll be sharing some Qasidas at the end of this presentation. Uh, it's from the 19th century, the early 20th century, when modernity is beginning to impinge on the traditional Islamic world, and certain solutions are found in the tradition ...that are purely authentic within the tradition and don't represent some kind of strange hybrid... ...that isn't properly modern and isn't properly Islamic either. One of the things we might want to bear in mind as we go through this sometimes quite dramatic, even harrowing story... ...is the extent to which modern Islamic leadership, by wittingly or unwittingly modernising... ...that is to say westernising itself, has not proved adequate to the task and so many places in the Muslim world today, have a leadership deficit. Either scholars who are stuck in their madrasas and have no knowledge of what's going on outside, or people who have reformed, changed, rationalised, or fundamentalized the religion in ways that again seem to lead only to dysfunction. So, uh, let's begin with the thought then that what we're looking at today is a potential alternative An exemplary and still massively successful model whereby a fully traditional 100% classically formed Islamic figure can hold together his people in the face of very extreme internal (coughs) and external threats and produce a generation that produces another generation that leads to the fluorescence which allows our brothers to be here today and more fluorescence inshallah in years to come it's a successful model which deserves our respect and consideration in a time where so much else seems to have failed. Sheikh Ahmad Ubamba is, of course, from the west of the Islamic world, almost further west than we are here in England, a long way from Medina, but a place that has a very distinctive Islamic heritage. We don't have time to look at that often glorious spectacular history in detail, but, but it does help to set the scene, to understand what is going on as the Europeans start to impinge upon the traditional lifestyle of the people of West Africa. The story of Islam in Africa, of course, is coterminous with Islam itself. The first hijrah was to Africa, not to Medina. The early prophet, alayhi says to his companions, when they go to Egypt, You'll find people with dark skin and crinkly hair and you should honor them because they are the relatives of Hajar. Where is she buried? The African matriarch in the Hijr next to the Holy Kaaba. No other African in history has been honored like that. Hardly any other person in history has been honored like that with her son Ismail. According to Azraq and all of the historians, that's a kind of indication of Islam's later African extension. We have an African matriarch who gives us the Sa'i and Zamzam and that great story. We have a biracial patriarch, her son Ismail, salam, who introduces and spices that African possibility into the whole Abrahamic story. And the Holy Prophet salam, is very aware of this, honor them. And then you have the actual reality of Muslim history. Some of it trading, some of it conquest, some of it just conversion. And you have the kingdom of Takrur or the lands of Takrur emerging sometime in the 11th, 12th century. And if you imagine that hardly anybody lives in the Sahara, you go south of the Sahara, you come into savanna country. There's trees, there's dry grass, there's seasonal rains. Some agriculture is possible, but it's a bit marginal. And then beneath that, you get the rainforests, pretty impenetrable. So, Islam flourishes in that wide band that's between the Sahara Desert and the rainforest to the south. And that's approximately the land that the Muslim geographers call Takrur. And uh, the Maliki Madhab has always been predominant there. This was cemented when the Murabitun, the great Almoravid dynasty, who we think of of building those amazing things in the city of seville far to the north are also down as far south as the, the senegal river they were staunch malikis and the region has always been very devoted to the madhab of imam malik radiallahu an so the murabiton are there and then you get further dynasties and then you get the famous story of the great african king mansa musa who's a little bit further east Remember, travel tends to be east-west in that area because to the north there's the desert, to the south there's the rainforest, to the east there's the hajj. So that tends to be the axis of communication, and we'll see how that influences the evolution of this story today. Mansa Musa in 1324, I think it was, did a really spectacular hajj. He's the king of Mali. And he spends some time in Egypt, and everybody is quite amazed by his wealth. They say he gave away so much that the price of gold in Egypt started to go down. People had never seen that before. He goes, according to the historians, with 70,000 followers uh, on Hajj. It's a very spectacular thing. Ibn Khaldun notes him and says, well, he was a good and a just king. So it's already become not a marginal place, even though it's geographically far away, but a center of very considerable civilizational importance, scholarship, and excellence. And it's Mansa Musa who incorporates the city of Timbuktu into his empire. He visits it on his way to the Hajj, and on his way back incorporates it, and founds the great Sankore University, which is in all of the cities of the Sahel, perhaps the best known and most ancient of the great centers of Islamic higher learning. The building is still there. Um, along with the great mosque that Mansa also built there with the help of Andalusians and a major civilizational centre. So it might seem to some of us that we're looking at somewhere that's kind of on the edges, but it's not in fact. It's very incorporated into the world of very mobile, travelling Islamic civilization, and the scholars are scholars of a high level. And then the Europeans show up (laughs) The Europeans, first of all, the Portuguese, the first of the kind of troublemakers, because they bring the Inquisition with them. They're quite fanatical, really. So the Portuguese uh, appear in 1445 on the coast of Senegal, and then there's a tussle between the European powers. The Dutch are there for a while and they occupy the island of Gore which becomes the great slave trading island for the Europeans as they take Africans across the Atlantic. The Dutch are there first and then the British turn up and then the French turn up. And what they find is this world of the Sahel where people are educated but in a very different kind of tradition and where there's a kind of balance, sometimes disrupted but sometimes real between traditional forms of religion, Islamic forms of religion. It's kind of... There's local skirmishes, but it's not like Europe, where you have the wars of religion and the Reformation and great explosions of religious hatred, a third of the population of Germany dying during this period as a result of wars between different Christian factions. So what becomes known as Senegal is caught between different civilizational spaces and takes some time before it really catches up, you could say. So to the north, you have the scholars of Mauritania, which is desert, and the scholars are often nomads, but scholars of a very high degree. To the east, you have Timbuktu, Gao, and the other centres of learning along the Niger River and then further to what we call Sudan and beyond. Very high degree of scholarship there as well. But to the south also, there's a region called the Futa Jallon, which also has an impact in uh, the shaping of Senegambian Islam. This is a, a plateau... A high mountainous region in what's largely in what's now called the Republic of Guinea. Sometimes they call it Africa Switzerland because it's really high, so it's relatively cool, um, agricultural, prosperous area, and absolutely a citadel of Islam for at least 600 years. And the Futa Jallon, <coughs> still famous for its scholars, produces a class of ulama called the Jahanke who are Maliki ulama with certain particular dispositions. They tend to be relatively tolerant of traditional religion and give people time in order to complete their Islam. They're very tafsir-focused. They have a high degree of these. It's a very endogamous group. They marry amongst themselves, and it's kind of a caste. Uh, They're very interested in spreading Islam to the north and to the south. They're generally not jihadists, unlike some of the other Muslims in West Africa at the time. Uh, they're scholars uh, and engage in the jihad of the pen. And uh, being just to the south of Senegambia, of course, they have an influence as well. And after Sekou Touré and his Marxists took over in Guinea at the beginning of the 1960s on independence, quite a lot of the Jahanke and their descendants went into Senegambia, where they continue to contribute to the religious mix there. So Senegal, to the north, to the east, and to the south, you have these Islamic citadels. It's not its not really on the edge, and part of the story of Ahmed Bamba is uh, the story of finding ways which are compassionate but successful of helping people over the watershed between traditional pagan religion and into his very kind of sunnah-compliant interpretation of Islam. So The French end up becoming the preponderant power in what ends up being called uh, Senegambia. None of those borders uh, really make a lot of sense locally. The predominant language in Senegal is Wolof, but there's Wolof speakers in Mauritania, some in southern Mali, some in northern Guinea. It's the usual case of colonialists putting borders in uh, destabilizingly wrong places. And the French create a capital for themselves, Saint-Louis, which is today on the coast in the north of uh, Senegal. And to indicate their intentions, they name it after the most famous of all French crusading kings, who was given the title saint by one of the popes for his exploits uh, during the Crusades. Uh, the town is still called Saint-Louis to this day. And it becomes the capital of what they call uh, French West Africa and is quite a, still quite a smart sort of colonial town with a lot of old buildings. And nowadays kind of being gentrified a little bit. Some of the buildings are bought by foreigners and locals and being done up, and it has quite a kind of prosperous air to it in many ways. Still predominantly Muslim town these days. So... Uh, Saint-Louis is the capital and continues to be so until 1902. And the French are there not just for glory, but also for money. And along the Senegal River, you have the the cash crop that's the staple in Senegal at this time, which is gum Arabic, Uh, an ingredient of Coca-Cola. So obviously, (laughs) of great strategic significance nowadays, Um, they're still producing it. Um, so after various wars with the British, in 1814, the French finally establish their control and start to move inland from the coast. And inland, they find a kind of patchwork of smaller kingdoms. The large kingdom of Jollof has just disintegrated, and there's uh, minor towns with their own kings and their own rulers. Some of them Islamic, some of them non-Islamic, some of them kind of halfway between the two. Usually the pagan kings would have Muslim advisors, accountants, and so forth, because they could read and write kind of rather strange symbiosis. And so it's in this time of the decay of the old sort of unifying political order that's indigenous and the appearance of the French coming in from the coast with their mission civilatrice. They saw themselves as uh, pacifying the country. It wasn't a war, it was a pacification. That kind of colonial uh, uh, mindset was at work. And in the year uh, 1853, that's when our Sheikh, Sheikh Ahmad al-Mamba, was born, in the village of Khurumbake. And all of the events of his life, um, key moments, are still commemorated and form parts of local pilgrimages to this day in, in Senegal. Lots of stories, as you can imagine, of him as a baby. We're told how he liked to spend time in the prayer room in the house how he always cried when he was in a dunya situation when people were talking about worldly things. People could see from an early time that this is obviously a child with natural righteousness. And the family, the Mbakhe family, were already established scholars, so he was born into a family of ilm. His, his great-grandfather, Mamé Mara Muhammad al-Khairi, who was actually um, famous as the ancestor of quite a lot of modern uh, Senegalese uh, ulama, um, was uh, somebody who in many ways establishes the family tradition of trying to avoid rulers as much as possible. This, as we'll see in this story, is one of the key tensions that the ulama have to deal with. And he also begins a tradition that becomes important for Sheikh Ahmed Ubamba, bamba which is the founding of villages in this semi-arid region. Uh, and this is, of course, facilitated. The Maliki madhab, like other madhabs, uh, has the principle of Ihya al-Mawat, al-Malawat basically means that, as the hadith says, Man ahya ardan mayta Whoever gives life to dead land becomes its owner. So in sharia, if you go off to the desert and there's nobody there, nobody's laying claim to land, and you start to cultivate it after a few seasons, and the different ulama have different specifications for that, it becomes your legal inalienable property in sharia. And this principle, which is prophetic, has done a lot historically to allow um, the cultivation of hitherto neglected wilderness areas. It's a very practical incentive. So uh, the sheikh's father, Moumar Antasali, and his mother, Ma'amid Yarrabuso, are both scholars. There's a tradition of female piety and scholarship um, which continues. His father becomes a Qadi, uh, and also seems to be the first member of the family to have formally practiced the Tariqa Qadiriyya, um, and links uh, himself to a, a, a zawiya in southern Mauritania, um, across the river, to the north. And the Mauritanian scholars are themselves, the Qadri lineage goes back to Timbuktu, to the Kunta Qadris of, of Timbuktu. So it's not to the north, to Morocco, as you might expect, but it's kind of to the north, but then to the east. That's the kind of deep silsila or lineage that these people are being transformed by. And then his mother, whose nickname, who's honorific to this day, is still Jariyatullah, Allah's female servant, uh, is uh, from a famous family of Qur'an lovers. It's even said in the tradition that Allah loved her so much for her love for his book that he gifted her with uh, this this faithful, Qur'an-loving daughter. And that becomes, again, as we'll see, a key theme in Senegalese Islam, which is very Qur'anic-rooted spirituality. Um, And and subsequently, she's famous for the traditional virtues, hospitality, tahajjud, zuhud, She's his first teacher. She sings songs to him when he's a baby, tells him the stories of the Auliyah and of the Sirah and so on. But she dies when uh, she's only 33. This becomes one of the early uh, watershed moments in in his life, very significant uh, teacher that he had, his his mother. Um, And in fact, her hometown, Porokhan, is actually kind of literally her town. She's called the Queen of Khan. There's a Mazar there. There's a second biggest pilgrimage in Senegal is to her town. And uh, it's kind of flourished in a very classically Islamic way as an, a, a place of of barakah. Um, so the the child, clearly destined for a life of piety and Quranic orientation, brought up with these blessed parents. Uh, his early education follows the traditional pattern, which is focused on the memorization of the Qur'an. Um, his uncle, Sarin Muhammadu Buso, um, teaches him the Qur'an in the traditional way, which is the wooden law, and you write the verses on it. And then when the child has memorized the verses, you wash them off and you write them again. Things like books would not have been widely available, certainly not for children's education at the time. Education through stories of the saints, always hugely important in the upbringing of children in the traditional Islamic world. Um, studies with him, with a local imam, and also many of the ulama who are based in the towns there would also have a kind of country house or a farm uh, where they would go during the wet season, where they would concentrate on the growing of millet. It's a very kind of agriculturally based uh, society, so very often people are kind of migratory between the cities and, and, and the hinterlands. And on his journeys to the hinterlands, um, he acquires a taste for khalwa, seclusion. He kind of likes being alone with his lord under a tree, by a hill, in some secluded place that he feels has some kind of particularly serene presence. Uh, this is what he loves. At the same time, he acquires teachers uh, not just from his father's qadri Tariqa, but also from the, the, the tijaniyya and from uh, the Sher Delia, who also spread in uh, Senegal. One of the features of his way is that it's kind of inclusive of a range of toroq. So an idyllic life dedicated to God and to the Qur'an as a young child, but the age of eight, war comes. Remember, this is a very unstable kind of region with rival rulers, with their militias um, often quite brutally raiding each other, carrying off their livestock, Uh, their families and so forth Uh, and this is exacerbated by the fact that the French on the coast are trying to establish their control of the hinterlands by backing some rulers against others sometimes deliberately inciting feuds to weaken both sides so the French can then go in and, and mop up classic colonial divide and rule policies in the middle of this scholars often had to decide which side to take were you on the side of this king or that king the consequences could be quite extreme. And as we've seen, uh, very often the ulama like to cultivate the traditional virtue of detachment. But sometimes, if you're a Qadi, for instance, it's not so easy to just ignore the fact that ultimately you are part of the, the territory of a ruler. Some of these rulers decide that this is time for jihad, either against each other or against the French. And the famous president for this was um, Sheikh Omar Tal, who had uh, launched a large jihad against the the French, which was defeated in 1857. Mm. The natural instinct of any people confronted by foreign occupation, whether you're Ukrainian, for instance, or others, is that you take up arms and you fight against them. Problem is, of course, the extraordinarily uh, sophisticated weaponry and sometimes the quite merciless techniques that were deployed by the French. Mm. He had, against overwhelming odds, it's not allowed in Sharia. So this is his childhood. The French are appearing. Wars of conquest, destruction of villages, populations are being expelled, moved around. French schools are appearing in order to create a local elite that the French can then work with and work through. It's the mission civilatrice, the civilizing mission, of the French Empire, which by and large is anti-Islamic. The usual view inculcated in colonial administrators was that Islam is backwards, it's a fanatical force, and it must give way to the superior civilization of France, which is based on science uh, and reason. Um, as Muslim authorities weaken, some traditional pagan authorities, such as the Soninke, who are down right in the south, start to persecute or maltreat the uh, Muslim Villagers uh, drinking openly, scoffing at them, uh, beating them up, and so forth, and taking them from their land and giving them really marginal, bad land to farm. Uh, so these individuals, these refugees, really, from their homes, do start a jihad against the French, led by somebody called Maba Jahouba, uh, And there's a major conflict. Uh, the French send in their uh, latest troops with the latest uh, uh, rifles and the jihadists are massacred and some of uh, Ahmad al-Bamba's family are also killed martyred during this conflict his sister was slow- sold into slavery and so forth and many uh, militant groups that have been kept in order by the traditional balance of power between the different kings are kind of released and become marauding bands in the countryside one of these is the group known as the tieddo who are kind of a bit like the mamluks of the middle east in that they originate as slave soldiers owned by kings or major landowners um, and some of them are nominally muslim many of them are not muslim they are famous for drink they tend to behave badly with women they encounter they're kind of uh ruffians and part of the process of spiritual pacification which Sheikh ahmed obama uh, launches later in his career in senegal is to try and bring those very difficult people once their kind of aristocratic associations have been done away with in the new french order to bring them towards islam this proves one of his biggest challenges so this uh, jihadist movement uh, it, it forces the ulama to move from major centers in central Senegal, Jolof, Baul, and so forth, areas around where uh, Sheikh Ahmed is, is, is growing up, to the main city of the jihadist, Saloum. Ahmed al-Bamba continues his studies, he's completed his hifs, and then you have the, the final uh, massacre, 1867, Maba is killed, and the French have consolidated their control. So you have the city, Salom, where you have these, as it were, refugee ulama of different orientations. One of the things about the life of the sheikh is that he's quite open to the different tendencies and understandings present in uh, Sahelian Islam. One of the big arguments is, of course, the validity of jihad as opposed to some kind of scholarly persuasion. What was the chance of succeeding when the French have got modern artillery and grapeshot? and most of the mujahideen are armed with bows and arrows and swords. Uh, What what should be the strategy? Um, In the same town of Salom, there's a range of tariqas. There's Tijani's, Qadri's, and also an interesting group. Um, You can see them on YouTube, the Layen Brotherhood. Senegal's small smallish country, but has a lot of interesting internal Islamic differentiations. If you drive north of, of Dakar... Um, on a Friday morning or a Saturday night, uh, just before Juma, you can uh, see some of the most amazing dhikr you'll ever encounter in the main mosque, which is kind of on the beach in this fishing town. And they're all fishermen. And their dhikr is the kind of thing that they would be doing while they're rowing oars, um, hoisting sails and things. Very beautiful sounds. And everybody's dressed in white. And... Uh, another interesting thing about these Senegalese movements is that they, they conserve relics of French compromises with local, local sovereignty. So that town of Yoff is technically not fully part of the Republic of Senegal, but it has its own laws, and uh, it's dry, of course, no alcohol, and so forth, and it's an interesting kind of module within the larger Senegalese state. But these are not followers of Ahmed bamba This is Lyon. Brotherhood. They all have the same name, Lai, which is incredibly confusing. I mean, on the one hand, you're not embarrassed by forgetting people's names. It's also a bit confusing. Anyway, I went there. It was a beautiful place on the beach. So uh, 1868, um, another jihad starts, uh, this time uh, under somebody who seems to be making Mahdist or Messianic claims for himself from the Tijani side of things. And Ahmed al-Bamba's father is the fiqh advisor to this new king. And that's one reason, I think, why the French subsequently always, throughout his life, suspicious of Ahmed al-Bamba, because his father has been the chief mufti of this uh, rebel group. So in this time, he moves to the city of Kyor. By the age of 20, he's moved into higher education, tafsir, baidawi, and so forth, more advanced texts, strong emphasis on, on Arabic. Um, he writes a, a book, Mawahib Al-Quddus, which is a commentary on the Aqidah work, um al-Barahin of As-Sanusi, starts to give fatwas, works with his father as his kind of khatib or his scribe. And clearly now beyond the stage of uh, education and moving into the realm of teaching himself. Then you have another of the kings, a certain Lat Dior, changes side, supports the French against this rebel jihadist, Ahmed Alba. And you have uh, the Battle of Sambasadio, which is uh, where the French actually defeat, once again, the jihadists. On all sides, there's cynical alliances, treachery. uh, It's a very unstable and ugly world. And as usual, in war zones, it's the weak um, who suffer the most. Now, Ahmad al in the midst of this, has taken the traditional fiqh position that the scholar is better off distancing himself from rulers. Um, and in particular, he is telling Muslim rulers uh, that they need to be freeing Muslims who they've enslaved in these internecine conflicts, and that uh, gets him into trouble. So... Uh, Lat Dior summons him saying who is this troublemaking jurist who is telling me what to do and he refuses to attend his court saying the ruler should visit the scholar and the scholar should not visit the ruler Um, Ahmed Obamba is also it seems at this time reminding his father that this is the best policy he shouldn't be associating with rulers on one occasion he apparently left a little note to this effect underneath his father's pillow it's a very polite society, and directly confronting your father would not be possible, but uh, this has been recorded. At This time he marries his brother's widow, Tore, which cements his connection to the family. Uh, the next milestone is at the age of 30 in 1882, when his father is dying, and his father entrusts the Mbake family to him. And the janaza is... Obviously, an event that attracts a large number of people. And in the time before internet gatherings such as that were an opportunity to make an announcement and to get the word out on something important. And here he publicly declares his belief that one should not associate with rulers. So he says at the janazah, it is not my custom to keep company with rulers. I look for no help from them. Allah alone is the one to whom I look for the granting of honor. This is pretty badly received. The Wolofs are generally polite and discreet people. Um, and this kind of frankness is disconcerting. So he writes to King Lapdior and says, An alim in a king's court is like a fly eating impurity. Well, the king doesn't like this too much. <laughs> and he retreats. He goes off into the savannah on Khalwa, And here he develops... Another aspect of his spirituality which is a very close spiritual connection to the Sahaba, um, particularly those Sahaba who refuse to associate with fitners of any kind um, or to associate with, with rulers. 1883, he leaves for eight months, visits various ulama and awliya, attains uh, ijazas, and uh, al Haj Kamara in Saint-Louis gives him ijazah to be muqaddam and hands him the ritual turban and staff of that role. He goes to a sheikh Sidiya, who is in Mauritania, who is from that line of Qadr, is connected to the Qantas of Timbuktu. Uh, Here he finds many manuscripts. He's able to improve his learning, because educational standards are pretty high in Mauritania. He's also initiated into the sheikh, the and is making very considerable spiritual progress. He gets back, and by now there's tensions between King Lat Dior, who is annoyed, and the French. In 1886, Ahmed Ubamba and Lat Dior supposedly meet, and it's said that Lat Dior actually repents at that meeting. Ahmed Ubamba tells him to lay down his arms and to stop fighting suicidally against these overwhelming odds. Lat Dior ignores him and dies in a battle, and the French now are able to occupy the interior of Senegal, and destroy the traditional court structure, the traditional matrix of society, the tieddor these kind of samurai warriors of the courts. Um, and in the midst of this chaos, Ahmed Obama goes back to his birthplace, Mbake Baoul. So Senegal is really kind of devastated at this time. There's smoking towns, and women have been abused, and a lot of people have been taken into slavery. The French thing is very arrogant and difficult to deal with so he's looking at a kind of ruined country and as part of his strategy for rebuilding this post-jihad landscape he creates what he calls da'iras, da'iras like a zawiya or a settlement um, where religious teaching can take place and each one is named after one of Allah's beautiful names so da'iratul quddus, da'iratul ghafoor and so forth. Each one is named after one of the names. And in each of these little colleges, uh, there's three stages of education, which he calls tarbiyah, which he called and 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 I did want to share with you, if we've got time, some of his amazing poetry, because his words are going to have more impact than mine. Um, they say, Bidhikrihim by mentioning these people, mercy descends. That's why I said this is not an academic encounter. If you are orienting yourself towards the fragrant memory of one of the men of Allah, then some of that barakah will, inshallah, not escape you. Al-almu <laughs> yanqasimu wa sirran kutim ينقسم لظاهر وباطن سرا كتم ظاهره المصلح للأعمال والباطن المصلح للأحوال فأول باسم تفقه دعي والثاني عنهم بالتصوف وعي ثم تقديم الفتى الفقه على التصوف وجوبه قد انجل فمن إلى إخلال الأول انتمى and so on what is saying in this poem and his form of instruction basically in this pre-internet world is by composing easily memorized poems in a simple meter why is it in Arabic because Arabic is the kind of language that unites the Muslims of Senegal (coughs) there are so many different local languages so here he's saying, <coughs> according to the ulama, knowledge divides into external and internal knowledge, and there's a secret in this which has been concealed. The outward knowledge is that which correct actions, and the inward knowledge is that which correct states. And the first is known by the name of fiqh, and the second is known by the name of tasawwuf tafaqh, Tasawwuf. <coughs> and then the student should always put fiqh before tasawwuf. This is an obvious obligation. Whoever is guilty of neglecting the fiqh will be destroyed in this dunya, according to the ulama. <coughs> and whoever is neglectful of the second hmm, shall be destroyed in the next world. That is the decree of the Almighty. <coughs> So a, a very classical understanding of the relationship between Zahir and Batin. And this uh, informs his uh, famous educational reforms. So he's trying to deal with this shattered landscape um, with this policy of planting little colleges and lodges everywhere. And another feature of these da'iras is that quite often they're in quite remote places. They're settlements um, that he's establishing on the basis of this ihya al-Mawat sunnah principle. And so he encourages the students to spend much of the day in khidmah and also in cultivating crops, particularly groundnuts and millet. <coughs> 1885, he moves from Mbaki Ba'ul to Dar es Salaam just to the north with his brothers and 200 disciples. And is joined uh, by some defeated, unemployed, warriors, refugees, people who are fleeing from the Frenchification of the schools and looking for something authentic and Islamic. During this time, he says that he is looking for his special place, which he is already calling Toba. What's the meaning of Toba? He's looking for a place. Nobody's heard of it. They don't know what he's talking about. Well, even the origin of the name, it sounds as if it's the Tawbah tree in paradise, Sidrat al Muntaha. There's a certain verticality and sheltering uh, associated with the mi'raj that uh, makes a tree a kind of holy place. Um, but he's looking. And another of the things that has come down to us in his writing is that he's very interested in sacred geometry and geomancy and the spiritual luminescence of landscapes. This is something that uh, spiritual souls have always perceived. Native Australians are amazed by Uluru, and they're right. Muslims are amazed by Mount Uhud, they're right. Some of the Naqshbandis in this country like to visit certain places in the countryside of particular spiritual intensity. So that's why there's a Naqshbandi Zawiya in Glastonbury, for instance. It's something Muslims traditionally did to intuit to a kind of tephoros a particular spiritual uh, potentiality in certain particular places. So he's doing this. He's looking for his place. It's not going to be necessarily the place of his birth. All kinds of stories, um, some of them no doubt legendary, about how he was beset by hyenas and lions as he wandered through the, 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 the wilderness looking for this place. And then an angel tells him one is on his journeys to retrace his steps. And he finds a tree, and he prays under the tree, hoping for guidance. And then he says afterwards, during his Sagittah, he experiences an incredible flash of divine luminosity. And this is the year 1886. And that place is now the site of his famous mosque, which is said to be the largest mosque in Africa. And it's an amazing place. Uh, And he makes his famous dua al-Kabir, his great dua, by thy bounty, by the name of he who guided me to you, O holy prophet, I petition you to make this a place of purity and peace. And visitors to the city of Tuba, wherever they come from, if they have a particular spiritual sensitivity, do notice the very strong sort of prophetic fragrance of the city. Which you can also find in, for instance, um, the De al Khayrat recitation in, in Marrakesh. There's a few places where the, the distinctive fragrance of the Mustafa is particularly eminent. Um, uh, <coughs> so in his famous poem about this Motl Bul Fauzain, al <speaking in foreign> Ridwani, <language> Dara وَاجْعَلْهُ دَأْبًا مَسْكَنَ التَّعَلُّمِي وَمَوْضِي عَلْفِكْرَةِ وَالتَّعَلُّمِي وَمَسْكَنَ الْإِرْشَادِ وَالتَّعْلِيمِ وَمَسْكَنِ التَّصْوِيبِ وَالتَّفِيمِ And so on. So it's like a du'a in this poem. And make this place of my residence a place of forgiveness and of guidance and of knowledge and of your approval. An abode of sincerity, truthfulness scrupulousness, an abode of sunnah that is uh, uh, free from bid'ah, and make it constantly a place of learning and a place of thought and the acquisition of knowledge, and a place of guidance and instruction, and a place of correction and of the inculcation of understanding. It's a little bit like the famous uh, dua for Makkah in the Quran, Rabbi, J'al hadha al balada amina. Allah, make this city a place of security and serenity. But this is a really remote place. It's kind of nowhere where he's had this experience. There's nothing there except a little well. If you go to Tawbah now, one of the things that visitors like is to visit the, the well, Bitra Rahmah, the well of mercy. And otherwise, there's nothing, but he becomes known. His title is Serin Tawbah. It's one of his names, the, the, the lord of the city of Tawbah. And it's a long way from any of the traditional rivalries, because there's nothing there. It's a long way from the French colonial thing. It takes about three hours now to drive there from Dakar. Um, it's like a ribat. It's in the traditional idea of a ribat, a kind of fortified sanctuary miles from anywhere. So he stays there, and he evolves an increasingly prophetic form of Devotion, and in 1895, he has his famous vision in Ramadan, a waking vision of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and according to the historians, it makes his bayah directly to him, and dedicates his life to khidma, which is why another of his titles is a sheikh al khadim, the servant sheikh, the servant of the Holy Prophet. So, again, his poetry does bring a certain fragrance. So I'm going to share a little bit more. وباعي اليوم الرسول المصطفى بِخِدْمَةٍ واسال الله الوفا احق بجملة الورى بخدمتي بالنظم والنثر رسول رحمتي زهدني طلوع الشمس في نظر الى النجوم في السماء والقمر وليلت عابدا خديما للرسول من عام أَيْسَشٍ الى عام الرحيلي so he's saying, Today I have made bay'ah of the chosen messenger. My bay'ah is on the basis of my service, and I ask Allah to make me faithful in that service. He is of all creation the one who deserves my service the most. In my prose and in my poetry, he is the messenger of mercy. Uh, now that I have seen the sun rise, uh, I have no need of the stars and of the moon. Uh, I shall continue to be devoted and a servant to the messenger from this time until the day of my death. It's a very famous um, few lines uh, which indicates the particular fragrance of his spirituality. It's a very direct and intense (coughs) Uh, (coughs) connection with the Holy Prophet and much of his writing is simply prophetic Amdar and madair. So you have this city which is bringing up as people start to move to this place where the sheikh is kind of in his little hut or still under the tree just doing his ibad, and people want to be with him and so they start to build, although it isn't really a city for, for some years. Um, and for those who come to be with him, to study with him, um, he imposes two overall rules. Firstly, they have to learn the Islamic sciences, Secondly, they have to avoid ever being paid for religion. So if you don't accept those two principles, you're not really going to fit in in, in toba. And to this day, it's a center of madrasas and scholars, and there's a whole street that I've been to with bookshops. and It's a, it's a city of, of serious scholarship. Another thing that's going on with this kind of new tariqa is that it's unlike a lot of traditional West African societies, which are quite hierarchical, uh, he's accepting just about anybody and appointing anyone simply on the basis of their taqwa. So there's travelling singers, the griots, who are kind of rather low caste in traditional West Africa. He's very happy to have them as his maurids. Slaves, former slaves, that's fine. Sometimes they even become sheikhs. Um, it's very ghazalian, this kind of appending of the traditional order, which for the traditional people you know, is not acceptable. And there's a lot of opposition, a lot of envy at this kind of reform. Um, and as a result, some of the traditionalists and the former rulers and the French employees warned the French saying, Ahmed al out in the desert there, he's dangerous. He's getting an army together. He's preparing for war. This is going to be like al-Hajj omartal. It's going to be jihad all over again. Watch out. This kind of whispering begins. In this time, he acquires his three major deputies, who are still kind of known, loved figures um, amongst their descendants and others in Senegal. Sereno Birahim, who is well known for his kind of religious rigour, a and then his friend, confident advisor, um, his half-brother, Sheikh bake And then Sheikh Ibrafal, who is from the city of Kayor, not far away, central Senegal who is kind of his major majordomo, his official representative, his ambassador. And he calls him Babel al-Muridin, so he's kind of threshold. You just talk to him before you go in to see the sheikh. And he's famous for converting a lot of the kind of difficult, very traditional people, including the tiedo, these kind of ex-samurais who are wandering around, not really being Muslim or continuing to drink or whatever, um, uh, this, this guy. Um, Ibrafal is bringing them towards Islam and something he finds is effective with them is that some of them say we're not going to prostrate we're not going to do those Muslim things we're Muslims now Yeah, and so he, he utilizes their martial uh, energy by turning them into agriculturalists so all of these new da'iras, these settlements that are being created all over, he sends them out to those places and say till the earth um, make it fertile, produce crops and this kind of aura et labora ethos um, becomes quite um, a successful way of sedentarizing these people. But he's an odd person, and to this day, kind of people in Senegal, of course, love him, but it's not clear that he's really sharia-compliant. He's kind of on the bridge between the two worlds. It's a big controversy in Senegal, but his uh, spiritual descendants, the Bayefalla you can see them quite they're quite spectacular because they have patched robes they have dreadlocks often they're musicians Sheikh Law who's a famous Senegalese musician is, is is from from that group and very khidma oriented so if you go to a big iftar gathering in Dakar it's likely to be they're, they're the ones who are cooking and, and bringing the food they also physically help with the construction of the mosque in Toba uh, and one of the, part of the greatness of Sheikh Ahmad al-Bamba is that he's not enforcing complete compliance on everybody immediately, but is bringing them in in a compassionate, understanding way and helping them to progress at their own pace. So these rumours are reaching the French, sitting behind their desks in Saint-Louis, reports coming in from spies, and they're getting anxious. <clears throat> and they're thinking, why would he go off to this nothing place if not to prepare for jihad and because his father had been associated with Lat Dior, the French send a colonial administrator to write a report. <coughs> that report has been preserved. It turns out the guy goes to his house, looks around, talks to him, doesn't find this army in the making. He writes this back to Saint Louis. During my mission, I inquired in numerous places about the Marabout Ahmedou Bamba. But everywhere, I heard nothing but good. He is a devout and calm person whose only failing is that he accepts many useless people as disciples. And if those types are not carefully watched, they are likely to cause trouble. <coughs> so, the most he can do is to say that there are these kind of ruffians, ex soldiers, slaves, and so forth, who are hanging around his encampment, and that might be a source of um, <coughs> worry. The Sheikh is aware of this, so he disaggregates a bit, sends his disciples off to different uh, places. Um, and Ahmed obamba himself goes to Saint Louis to tell the governor, I'm not a militant. I'm just a teacher, I'm an educator. The French are suspicious and would do anything to try and find some kind of evidence, um, but they can't pin anything on him. Still, the rumors persist. He's a troublemaker. Um, he's appointing sheikhs who are from kind of low-born families is disrupting the social order. A lot of money, of course, is coming into him. People love the Sheikh and he's dishing it out and is becoming a significant economic force that's not really under the control of the central tax authorities in Saint Louis. Um, So some Maurits are banished from the French towns. Uh, These Tiedos, these kind of samurai types, often turn against him. Uh, Some of them gang up uh, on his communities, on the Dairas and they burn their villages. It's an unstable situation. Uh, And the French can't work out why, despite all of this, Sheikh Ahmed al-Bamba is still incredibly popular and people are going to see him and sacrificing so much in order to be in his presence. They can't imagine, in their secular way, that all of this could be uh, for anything other than some kind of political ambition. in May 1895 the old French governor uh, Henri de Lamotte goes back to France and a new governor who doesn't really understand the situation comes and listens to these grievances from these d'or types the old kings Uh, and a French official notes that Ahmed Obama if he wanted in one day could put 5,000 warriors into the field. So the French go to all the diaras, the soldiers break in, they can't find a single weapon, there's nothing. Still the situation is regarded by the French as unsustainable. So on August the 10th, 1895, he's arrested at Jawal in Kayor province. And the French take him to Saint-Louis and put him in a dirty, tiny cell. And his, uh, <clears throat> he has a memoir, Jezat Shakur, which is about the, the journey um, it's such an amazing text that I do want to read a little bit of it. <clears throat> it's uh, relatively short, but I can only <laughs> read a little bit. It's kind of a autobiography. <laughs> now, during this time, he's actually treated really badly. He's humiliated. Um, the French are trying to to discredit him in the eyes of the ordinary Senegalese Um, and after a trial which just lasts a couple of hours, it's a kind of show trial really he's um, put onto a boat uh, dirty Portuguese steamer which sails down the coast and is taken to a prison in Gabon where he remains, but let's, let's let him talk about this because this is so unlike the usual prison memoir Kind of ballad of Reading jail, I'm the poor victim, my oppressors are so evil. <laughs> this is coming from an Arif Billah. And what he recounts of it, what he wants people to know about it, is <laughs> really quite uh, disorienting. One of the great things about being with the awliya and traveling with the awliya is that everything is kind of a surprise. Because the ego does predictable things, but the ruh does whatever is spontaneously right and good in every situation very often that surprises us anyway so this is what he writes afterwards um so, he begins uh, by saying alhamdulillah who brought the author of this little book, to him, through his precious book, and by his most noble prophet, Sayyidina wa Muhammad, alihi wa sahbihi, azka, salamu, and upon all of the uh, prophets and the sent ones, that great honor. This is how he begins his kind of prison memoir this is my discussion of some of rabbal alamin's blessings upon me out of gratitude to him and gratitude for his having appointed me to be the servant of the guide and the trustworthy one may peace and blessings be upon him and the whole thing is absolutely not a victim account but uh, the account of somebody who is absolutely full of the Divine. No, my righteous brother, may Allah protect us all from every miscreant that I departed on Saturday, the 4th of Safar, uh, on such and such uh, a year, this is when he's arrested, from the Dar. Which I built in the land of Jolof. After the representative of such and such a governor came to me, and between me and him, there had happened what there had happened. So I went out to meet him and his representative outside. Uh, Who brought his army uh, to this dar, which I had built for learning and for teaching. On the evening of that day, in a place that is called Jawal. Uh, shortly after our meeting, we separated. And I spent the, the, the evening of the uh, following Sunday there by permission of the one who is Ahad. And after the dawn prayer, I left. And I was during that time. You have to imagine, he's under arrest. He's being taken away by the soldiers. This is how he describes it. So uh, I was... Uh, taken away after the dawn prayer and i was at that time reciting quran and reciting blessings upon the one f- on whom the most profitable blessings could be said wa qultu fil qaryah musamma bikuk and i said in the village which is called kuk dar ash shaykh al muhtar alladhi kana fi zamanihi sayyid Kulla man kana fi ummati sayyidna muhammad al muhtar fi ardillahi ta'ala gadur though he passed through the village of a friend of his, Sheikh Mukhtar. Uh, On that day, I occupied myself by recollecting and listing the names of the people who died at, who fought at the Battle of Badr. Upon them be the, the good pleasure of the one who has kept me safe from every source of treachery and I occupied myself with blessings and peace upon Sayyidina muhammad Muhammad, who is the one who lifts all sorrows. the one who continues to be the dewdrop and the lion in the wars. <laughs> مع كثير من الناس وكأني سريت بلا مشاركة ووصلنا قبيل الفجر إلى القرية المسمى بلقر So on that night we then travelled on and it was though I was travelling alone, he said. And we got before the Fajr to this other village. وَأَنَا فِي تِلْكَ اللَّيْلَ مِمَّنْ عَلَىٰ اللَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ وَحْدَهُ رَكَحْ وَقُلْنَا فِي مَا أَنَّهُ So again he's making dhikr and all he remembers of the journey is the dhikr that he's making. And I was blessing the one uh, through whose blessing uh, I was saved from all conspiracies and plots. We came to the land ship by which he means the train. The French had built a railway line inland. Liwaji later, Allah Wa Ta'ala, Ella Di Jada, Li Bil Bir, Wada Khaltu Safina, etc. And this ship set sail. Hmm? And as I set sail on this ship, these words came to me Subhanaman fil Barri Wal Bahri Ma'an, Ajral Jawari, Wakulan Jemah, Subhanaman Li Jada bis Safina, Fihidmati Li Sahib in Medina, Subhanaman Yulijuf in Nahari, So all of this for him is just an opportunity. He's under arrest, he's in this little train. All he can think of is tasbih and gratitude. And then he describes very briefly the affair of his uh, arrest. It would be good if we could continue, but uh, uh, he talks about what it was like on this ship and how he came, the ship put into islands and to ports where there was nobody who remembered God, and there was no positive relations between people. And then he comes to this island where he's imprisoned. Well, if he's not going to tell us about how the cell was, or the chains, or... This, remember, is 19th century France. This is the time of Papillon, Desert Island. You remember Steve McQueen, Dreyfus, and so forth. These must have been terrible conditions. You don't get any of that. Instead, what does he want to tell us about the island... Well, when he reaches the island, uh, the first thing he does when he gets to the prison is to pray salat al-janaza. And he's asked afterwards, why does he do this? Awliya always doing surprising things. I said salat al-janaza for all the Muslims who've died in this prison, and nobody said janaza for them. So he's just thinking about people who he hasn't met, and he prays janaza for them. And then he says, Amin." <laughs> And in that island, what did he do? <laughs> I compose two introductions to the blessings on the Holy Prophet. May Allah bless him and give him peace. He who has saved me uh, from left and right from all misfortunes. One of them is in prose, and the other is in poetry. وناجيت في تلك الجزيرة الله تبارك وتعالى من المحرم إلى آخر ذي الحجّة مناجات تصير على كل من أنكر أو شك في شيء منها أبلغ حجّة لكونها من فضي من إنما أمره إذا أراد شيئا أن يقول له kun So he's talking about the various adhkar and praises that came to him um, during these months. Hmm. وإني حين إذن ليس لي إلى غيره تعالى ركون، and at that time I had no reliance on anybody other than Allah. وفي ساحلي بحري تلك جزيرة وقفت، once I stood on the beach of that island. مرتجلن، وفي إرتجل ما أشركتو وما نفقت، and I was spontaneously composing without any idolatry and without any lack of sincerity. So, what's he saying? What is the poetry that naturally comes to his mind? I bear witness that I am the slave of he who forgives sins and that I am the servant of the chosen one at the Bahar of Mayunba. Mayunba is this island in southern Gabon far from any muslims it's almost on the border with congo very unhealthy um dreadful place and the french probably had sent him there to die this was their way of getting him out of the way because not many people came back alive walliya ashadu bi anni la udahin mushrikan khalilen habiban lilladhi karamal janba wa inni khalilun lil muqaffa habibuhu alayhi wa sallam man kafani al عليه سلام قائد قادني له به مع كتاب محكم طيب الجذب شكوري وردواني لربي والنبي على عصمتي من كيد طاغ به كبّ مديحك يا خير البرايا سعادتي يقيني به إبليس ربي متاذب مدحتك مدحا قد كفاني العدى معا بذكر حكيم فايده نحو إن صبّ so i can't translate all of it but basically it's a kind of ecstatic poem he seems to be very joyful he's saying thanks be to allah who's protected me from tribulations i hope that allah will forgive my sins i'm honored to be the servant of the chosen one the iblis has failed to uh, overcome me or to determine my enemies it's a very lovely thing and um there is we have time perhaps we just about have time this is a nice book by uh, an American Muslim Sheikha Maryam Kabir a journey through 10,000 veils and she describes it's kind of her spiritual journeys um, her own trip to uh, that island which is not in a Muslim area it's kind of beach town um, and she goes there with with the Murids. Um so I'll just read a little bit from her narrative by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I've been blessed to pray in the cave where the Holy Prophet received the revelation of the Holy Quran I would prayed in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus alayhi salam had prayed with his disciples on my first trip to Senegal I would prayed in the prison cell where Sheikh Ahmed Ubamba radiallahu anhu had been imprisoned because all these experiences had affected me so deeply when I saw the word walk where he walked I was moved to go so this is the reason that I went on the journey to Gabon and to other places where Sheikh Ahmad al an, had spent many years in exile and endured many trials for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the love of his messenger. My purpose for going to these places was to access and develop within myself the qualities that I perceived in him, such as profound faith, determination, fearlessness, acceptance and contentment with the divine decree. These were all divinely inspired qualities that enabled the sheikh to live through the tribulations he experienced with ever-increasing faith, gratitude, and joy. Then she talks about the journey to this remote place. In the evening, dressed all in pilgrimage whites, we were transported to a huge tent, Dressed in the whiteness of the purity of the path, I felt tiny in the immense regal gathering, but also empowered the grace given to us by God to focus the energy of that beautiful assembly. Nasihah very sweetly sang a few verses from the Qasida called Sindidi that Sheikh Ahmed Ubamba, radiallahu an, wrote for his mother, Mariam Bousal, and the people in the audience were overwhelmed with joy. I spoke then about the women of God. I looked out over the vast field of human beings and beheld a great sea of love and grace, and we were sitting in the center of it. The next morning, we set out on the pilgrimage. There were many red vans filled with pilgrims setting off in a column on the widening road, heading into the lush equatorial jungle. The vegetation in this part of the world around the equator is spellbinding. But while we had the luxury of riding in vans, driving along paved roads, he had walked through those jungles and been exposed to continual dangers, challenges and profound tests. It was the power of the light of his faith, his taqwa, that had carried him through all difficulties. He was unimpaired, on the contrary, spiritually strengthened by every challenge he faced and surpassed. In this sense, he is an excellent role model for all of us who are facing challenges and tests. Further, we must never forget that it was the Prophet Muhammad, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who was the inspiration for all that the Sheikh did and was, just as he is the primary example for us all. She talks a little bit more about the visit to the island, but gives a good sense of how these places are still considered to be almost sort of positively radioactive with the, the memory of the Sheikh. So the French have put him in this island, out of the way, and they think the Murid thing is going to calm down. They disperse them, they move them around, they consolidate their control. By 1900, the colony is more or less solidly under French control. Its borders are, f- are, are fixed, hmm. while ahmed Bamba is off in this penal colony at Mayumba. So nobody in Senegal knows whether he's still alive. But there's one Senegalese jailer there who takes some of his papers, uh, sends them back to Senegal, so people do at least know that that he's alive. Uh, And he composes here some of his great prophetic uh, praise poems. Um, The Senegalese jailer brings him pen and paper, so he's able to compose these. Um, But the Moridia, despite the expectations of the French, are actually continuing to consolidate and to become strengthened. And the French realize all they've done is to create a martyr, so in 1902, they release him. Vast crowds as he comes back to Senegal. And this event of his imprisonment is commemorated every year in the city of Touba and it's now a really big city, that place where he prayed, his rakas under the tree, is the second biggest city in Senegal now, maybe a million people, by the great event called the Magal, which is the big thing in the Senegalese calendar, um, where people go on the anniversary of this imprisonment, in order to visit his tomb, to pray in his mosque, to drink from the Well of Mercy, to learn to study with sheikhs. Uh, and it's a very interesting scene. Um, it's uh, the biggest gathering anywhere in Africa. About three million people now are said to attend. It's quite colossal. Obviously the logistics are immense. And if you're thinking about, you know, this is almost the size of the Hajj in a poor country. But it's Obviously difficult, but it's well organized, and there isn't a hotel there. They don't really have restaurants. It's a quite austere religious place. So there's no alcohol, obviously. They don't allow hotels because hotels can bring facade of various kinds. Um, They don't like instrumental music. It's an austere place, but full of joy. And they managed to organize this event. Even though, technically speaking, Torba is kind of extraterritorial and not properly speaking part of the Republic of Senegal, it's a complex thing that they argue about. But It's very traditional, self-governing. They managed to cope with three million people every year. uh, And it's televised throughout Senegal. It's the big event in the Senegalese character. Quite an impressive achievement, really. In any case, he's back. But five months later, the French think this is going to get difficult again, so they send him away again, this time to Mauritania. They think if we send him to a Muslim place, this will look like study leave, and he won't be a martyr any longer. And also the Senegalese, they think they're kind of white Arab Muslims. They look down on him. They have better scholarship. He'll feel a bit small there. But in fact, some of the the Mauritanian leaders take Bayar with him, and the tariqa starts to spread amongst the Hassani Arabs of Mauritania as well. And people are constantly coming to the Mauritanian border in order to see the sheikh. So uh, finally, um, he is released and is able to go back. Uh, the French don't allow him to go back to Torba. Um, they send him to a little village, Tien, where he creates a new dara, He's more or less under house arrest. He's under house arrest for the rest of his life. All kinds of rules. He's not allowed to have more than 50 guests at a time. The Zawiya has to be a particular size. Everybody who visits him has to have a written permit. The French bureaucratize the thing because they really see this as the principal challenge um, to their establishment of the mission civilatrice in France. Um, then the last 20 years of his life. Uh, through this process of the gradual inculturation of semi-Islamized communities, through providing institutions that can take in widows, orphans, ex-slaves, and so forth, and provide them with a context in these agricultural settlements, they become an economic powerhouse. And that ultimately is the reason why the French don't shut them down completely, even though it's not their idea of what Senegal should become, because uh, Senegal is spared famines as a result of the judicious cultivation of millet. The groundnut exports become the most significant foreign exchange earner for the new colony of Senegal. And the French, like most people, regard money as being the bottom line. And so they kind of, even though he's under house arrest and all kinds of indignities are imposed upon him, are uh, allowed to continue and in 1924 they finally give permission to build his mosque in Toba, which is now this uh, completely amazing place uh, said to be the biggest mosque in Africa etc. 1927 he's found dead in the morning having died in his sleep secretly taken by night uh, from this place where he's settled to the city of Toba where he is Buried and is succeeded by Serine Mostafa M'Bake, who is his oldest son. So what is the kind of leadership lesson of all of this? Well, French colonial rule in West Africa might seem to be an alien situation to what we're facing, being 6%, 6.5% of the modern British population. Uh, but nonetheless, It is interesting that Senegal remains a successful country that has never had a military coup. Not many African or Muslim countries can claim that. That has a generally decent level of conviviality between Muslims, Christians, and the remaining followers of indigenous religions. But at the same time, is very intensely and devotedly Islamic. Just about everybody there has a tariqah affiliation. So perhaps what we're seeing is an unusual example of a fully traditional style of Islamic scholarship and spirituality that can actually cope with the the rigors of um, foreign occupation and the challenge of modernity. It seems to work. It's not a reformed Islam. It's not really a modern type of Islamist political party. It's not a fundamentalist Islam. It's something that would have been recognizable a thousand years earlier, and yet it provides something that clearly is successful. We tend to think of football at the moment, perhaps, when we think of Senegal, but it's a, it's a lot more than that. And even though it's a country without oil and many natural resources, uh, it has managed to maintain itself and a degree of balance uh, in a way that I don't think any Arab country has done in recent times. Uh, so it's an example that certainly deserves further study and reflection. Uh, one of my main sources for this uh, has been a book which I can commend to you, uh, Michelle Kimball, who's a Muslim, Sheikh Ahmed a peacemaker for our time. It's quite a good, accessible, not too uh, bookish or academic uh, biography of the life of the sheikh. So that essentially is what I wanted to share with you. And I hope that this hasn't just been words, but that we have felt something of the uh, uncanny but reassuring presence of the sacred, somebody whose life was totally for God and his messenger uh, and who lived through tribulations, which for us would be unbearable, uh, but who in the depths of those uh, prison circumstances, de profundis, produced this literature of such joy and such hope Something that for us in our various tribulations uh, should be uh, a sobering inspiration, but also, inshallah, a source of hope. So thank you for your patience. I commend learning more about the Shaykh you, and a visit to uh, Tawbah, Dar es Salaam, definitely a transformative experience. Um, But enough of my words and inshallah we'll be hearing the real thing now when the murids themselves will be sharing some of the words of the sheikh in their inimitable style and we are very honored um, that you would be with us today assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah